Hey everyone, uh, I gotta be honest with you this week. This had to be one of the most discouraging weeks that I have had in years. It all started this week on Monday when I went for a minor knee surgery, but I was put out under general and when you come back that brings with it all kinds of changes and feelings and it affects your emotions. So, so I was already vulnerable for that. And then uh, I got the news that we are closing down, we're in shutdown and lockdown. And, and with that came the sense of, well, how are we supposed to do ministry? How do we care for people? We, we're struggling to figure out where people are at and how we can help them. And this isn't helping us any and now we're going backwards it seems. So that was kind of a, a downer uh, for sure. I'm sure all of us felt that way. And then along with that, those two things, I also was reviewing a review that we did on an evaluation of the ministry. And, and you know, that we have some great things happening, but we also have some things that really need to be addressed. And I felt really responsible for that. And I felt like, you know, I'm not leading well enough. We need to be doing this better. I, I, and I felt a responsibility to, to these things should be better. And then on top of those three things, uh, discouraging things, there was this overwhelming tsunami of, of accusation and this feeling of weight and oppression on me. And I've had spiritual warfare before where the demonic attacked and I know that's exactly what it was. And so I was struggling with those three things plus that uh, spiritual attack on me. And I was really going down and I was like, I, I, I don't even know why I'm doing ministry anymore. Why, why should I bother doing this? It's not really helping anybody. Nobody seems to be really getting ahead and, and I just seem to be going backwards and I was really just spiraling downward on this. Then ironically enough, uh, I was studying a passage in scripture that uh, talks about uh, the end uh, in our series and uh, how that passage kept saying to me over and over, hey, don't worry about it. It's all going to be worth it. God can use whatever you do. He's your ultimate judge. You aren't the judge. Somebody else isn't your judge. He's the judge. He makes it worth it. He will make it worth it. Keep enduring, keep on going. It's just like what Paul said in Romans chapter eight, where Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings, or in my case, my present discouragement, is not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Let's face it, all of us can feel discouraged that way. I mean, if you're going through long-term pain, whether emotional pain or physical pain, mental pain, that it can get tiring and you can begin to wonder, I don't know if I want to keep going through this. Or if you're struggling with something in your health and you start wondering, God, why don't you heal me? And you can get discouraged and say, why do I even bother following him? Or it could be you're looking for a spouse and, and you've been trying to be faithful to God and you've been trusting him, but he's just taking so long. And you go, well, why should I even bother being sexually pure or not date an unbeliever? Because this Bible says, what good's it doing me anyway? And so you begin to wonder, well, so why should I even bother? Or, or get this one, the Bible, it has so many strange views or teachings and that are so contrary to the world we live in, maybe you're getting tired and you're saying, I, I, I just am always going against the grain and I don't know if, if it's worth it anymore. I don't know if, if it's even true anymore. And we ask ourselves questions like that. Or maybe you're in COVID and you're wondering, God, why haven't you stopped this? Why, why, why haven't you done anything to change this? And so we get very discouraged and we want to quit. We want to think, let's just forget about following God. Let's just forget about listening to what he has to say. And that's when we feel that way, that's when, when we need to know the big picture. 
So we've been going through a series, and we started it a couple weeks ago, on the big picture of the Bible, taking a look at the Bible from a whole, from cover to cover, rather than just pieces and that we get from, from each book or a passage. And we started, we learned that God has this huge plan that he has. Before the creation of the world, he had this plan, and he was putting it in place. And then we went last week to Genesis, the very first few chapters of the Bible, and we learned why we needed a plan because of the consequences of the disobedience of our parents and those consequences that have embedded themselves into the life of people all over the world, people everywhere of all times of all places. But today I want us to go to the very end of scripture and look at the the end of the story because God actually teaches and gives us the end of the story. So take your scriptures and turn to Revelation chapter 21 with me. Oh, by the way, uh, we, Springvale, is on the YouVersion Bible app, and I encourage you to go to live events and check us out. There, there'll be questions that you can interact with this text and with others that are on the app. Now, Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, what I find really interesting about this passage is that, if you'll recall, there were five consequences to the fall. I, I gave them all F words so that we could remember them. And that in this description, all of those five consequences are resolved in mankind. Now, for instance, the first one was flight. You'll see it on your screen. Uh, flight, that we're running from God and we have no home. And yet in this verse, John writes, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, prepared as a beautiful bride for her husband. We have no home because of our sin, but God provides a new home. He provided a garden for Adam and Eve, but he provides a city, a place where all his people will dwell together. So we have a home that is resolved. The second F was fight, that our relationships are filled with conflict, husband and wife, brother to brother, nation against nation. And here we, we hear here, John says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now stop and think about it. What causes the most tears in people's lives? Well, it's the conflict in the relationships they have with their spouses, with their parents, with their family, with their friends at work. And, and God says, all tears will be gone. All the things, all the fighting in our relationships will no longer exist. In fact, one of the conflicts we have, I just mentioned a little bit earlier, was the demonic conflict that we have with us. And in the very first verse, uh, John writes, I saw a new heaven and new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, there was no longer any sea. Now, some interpret that to mean that there'll be no more oceans in this new heaven and new earth that God is going to create. But the sea in scripture is the place from which the demonic spirits and the evil spirits and the beasts from Revelation all come out of. And it's viewed as the chaotic, turbulent mass of humanity. And I think what I think that John is saying is there'll no longer be 
that turbulent, chaotic conflict that Satan causes in the nations and among the peoples of the world. Then in the next F was flawed, that our most basic responsibilities, work and reproduction were flawed and pain entered them. And John says here that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. There'll be no more pain. Pain was the part of the curse for both men and women and their roles and responsibilities in creation. And God is going to remove completely all pain. Just think about what that means. That there's no more pain. There's no more things that cause pain anymore. And so the pain that, har- that hampers us and that we have to live with and that causes us to die and the disease is all removed. It's all gone. The fourth F was fatality. We all die. And I just read it. There will be no more death. That the thing that causes death has been resolved by Jesus Christ on the cross. So we no longer will face death. We will no longer face separation from God. We will no longer be removed from the things, the rich, immaterial blessings that God wants to pour into us. Love, hope, joy, peace, significance, identity. All those things are our birthright because God is going to put us in a place where they naturally flow to us. And then the final F was that we were foes with God, that, that, that there was no rest for us anymore because we were constantly banished from God's presence. And John says here, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, I have never experienced a face-to-face meeting with God. And in this day, God says, you will experience me spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. I will be with them. So the very consequences that our sin has brought, God has resolved entirely and completely. So 21 verse 5 through 8. He who was seated on the throne said, I'm making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Now he said to me, it's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts the idolaters, all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, I don't know if you remember from last week, but last week I talked to you about the choice that Adam and Eve had. They were faced with temptation and they had to choose. Were they going to choose between God and self, between right and wrong, between satisfying God or satisfying self, believing Satan or believing God? And they had to make that choice. As a result of the choice they made, the wrong one, All of us have to make that choice at some point in our lives between God and self, between right and wrong, between Satan and truth. We all have to make that choice. And here we see uh, at the end is that everyone has made their choice and everyone is delivered to the very thing that they chose. And so to the first group, uh, we are told that those who choose God, those who choose to put their faith in God, to trust his word, and to choose to seek to follow him. So in other words, admitting that they're sinners, believing that Jesus' death, 
paid for their sin and then choosing to surrender their life to God. For those who make that choice and endure in it, they are victorious to the end and are given the water of life. And the water of life is a metaphor for those things deep within us, those immaterial blessings, love, joy, peace, uh, holiness, truth, beauty, uh, identity, purpose, fulfillment. Those things fill us and flow from the inside out. Now, there was a second group, and uh, John gives a list of some of the sins that identify that group. And clearly, there are choices where a person has chosen to go their own way or do what they want rather than choosing God's way in obedience. But the point is, is that they have made the choice. And then for them is the second death. Now, I think one of the most common misunderstandings of God that is out there is when it comes to this idea of the second death and eternal judgment is that God sends people to the second death and they're kicking and screaming and begging for mercy and wanting to uh, be with God. But God kind of laughs. You had your chance and he kicks them off into the second death. Well, nothing can be further from the truth. That's not that is not an uh, accurate understanding of God, nor is it an accurate understanding of the heart of mankind. We all make choices, and the more we make those choices, especially with regard to God, the more firm we become in them. And God's justice is such that he gives each person what they want, what they ultimately want. And so for those that want him, they receive what he gives, that water that springs to life. But for those who choose opposite of God or to deny God, he gives them what they want. You know, C.S. Lewis said, there's no hell worse for a person that has rejected God than to be in the presence of God. Now, let me just unpack that for a minute. What he's saying is that when our hearts choose to reject God, our heart doesn't want God. And when we live in that rejection and ultimately leave this world and stand before him, people don't suddenly become repentant and wish that they made a different choice. Quite the opposite happens. A heart that has denied God and rejected God is glad that it has denied and rejected God. In fact, when a heart that sees God sees uh, him in all his glory, there's a dislike and a distaste for God and they want away from God because had they wanted God, they would have drawn toward him. And so God isn't pushing people away. God gives them exactly what they want and what they want is out of God's presence because that's what sin does to us. You see, this is why we talk so much about my four and why it's so important. Because I believe that scripture teaches in Acts 17 that God puts us in the right place, in the right time, in the right country. That is the best place for us to make a decision to receive God. In other words, we're most, uh, we're most likely to choose to follow God now while we're here on earth than we ever would after we leave this earth. And so the people that we come in contact with are my four. The people around us that, that God has put us into the circle of relationship with. Those people that don't know God. This is their best time to ever be open to consider receiving God and seeking God. And so that's why we, we talk about interceding for people, praying that God will work in their heart, investing love into their lives so they can see Christ because Christ said, you, they'll know me by your love. Like when you show love, they'll see me. And then inviting them to read or to think or to talk or discuss or watch something. Now is the time because when people leave from this world and go to the next, they won't want God. They've already made that decision. And it's a sad reality that we need to be remembering of. And that's why we talk so strongly and so consistently and, and enthusiastically about 
letting God use us to reach my four. Now John goes on and gives a further description of this city. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven plagues came and said, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Of course, in scripture, the lamb is Jesus. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, uh, this revelation is apocalyptic literature, meaning it is full of all kinds of pictures that are sometimes really difficult to understand. And they're meant to be that way, big, grand, bold, to get across a point. And the angel says that the wife of the lamb is coming like a city. In Isaiah, the people of God are compared to being a city. And Jesus said, I've come, I've I'm going to prepare a place for you. So we know there's a place where we uh, will be with God. And, and the, 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 the angel here describes us as being a city because that's the place where we will dwell and God will dwell in us. We're, we're like a building in which a person dwells. We're the building in which God dwells. And so his presence is going to be with us. Then in verse 11, we are told it shone with the glory of God. Now he's talking about this city, this, the people of God, this bride of the Lamb. It shone with glory of God and its brilliance was like that of precious jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had great high wall with 12 gates and 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes. And there were gates on the east and on the north and on the south. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations and on which them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now, uh, again, apocalyptic literature, metaphorical language. And so what we're told about this city is that it's clear and bright and illumined. And light is always in scripture, a picture of truth and God. And so this is a city that is built. The, these people, this bride, is built on truth. And then he mentions, the angel mentions both the patriarchs of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Now 12 is a picture, is a number that is used in scripture to describe completeness and, and, and authority. And so this bride of Christ is built upon the 12 patriarchs and they represent the covenants of God, the promises. We're going to talk about that in our next sermon. And that is the covenants and the promises that God makes that he will enact. And the apostles, of course, were the leaders of the church who, were the, who gave the gospel, the truth of the rec reconciliation that happens in Jesus Christ. And so this city, this place where God dwells, this bride of the Lamb is built upon truth that is illuminating and clear. Now you stop and think about that. The things that we are taught in Scripture, in our culture today, are often misaligned and often considered, considered archaic, and we're out of touch. And uh, sometimes we're considered intolerant. But we are told that the truth of Scripture is a light that will shine forever. And upon those that, those that build their life upon it, will, will build their life upon the truth of God and will have a relationship with God. So sometimes when you get tired of living in a world and you, that begins to question your, your understanding of Scripture, and the value of scripture and how intolerant it is and how wrong it is. And just remember, you have a choice. Are you going to believe as God is described here that the church, his people are built upon truth and we'll stand firm in that truth? Or are you going to let it crumble? 
and follow the teachings and the opinions, really, of people today. That's one of the most discouraging things we're facing today. Is do I stand in the truth? And those that stand in it will experience and meet God. Now, there's some really odd or bizarre descriptions of this city that the angel gives. In verse 15, the angel who talked with me, said John, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city was laid out like a square. Now keep that in mind, square. Where else in scripture have we seen a square? As long as it was wide. And he measured the city with a rod and he found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and 12,000 wide and 12,000 high. Now 12,000 stadia is approximately 2,200 kilometers. So this city is from Toronto to Regina, one wall, and the next wall is from Regina to San Diego, and then from San Diego to Houston, and Houston back up to Toronto. That's 2,200 kilometers as wide as it is long, and then in that high. Now, that's a bizarre type of description for a city, but I think, our, 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 I think it's metaphorical because of 12, the number 12, and 12,000, again, 12 is complete, and it's governmental, and, and it's designed to show completeness. And this is beyond anything anybody can imagine. It's a city beyond what we can imagine today. No cities, even our greatest cities, London, uh, that's London, England, not London, uh, Ontario, uh, New York, uh, Los Angeles, Paris, none of them are as big as this. None of them is anything like this. And you can imagine the dimensions as somebody was hearing this, a city that large, only God could do something like this. It's a city whose maker is God. And it refers, again, the city is the bride of Christ. And so only God could build something like this. Only God could make a people of God. He Only he can restore and bring new life. And I think that's what it is supposed to mean. And he, he says that the, the wall was made of jasper. It was a city of, of pure gold. The foundations of the wall were decorated with every kind of precious stone. And then he goes on and lists a whole bunch of, uh, of stones, very expensive, precious stones. And then ends and says the, the great street of the city was gold as pure as glass. And, and, and think about it. In, in, in the day that John is writing, people didn't have banks. They didn't have access to store their money a place where it was safe and it would earn interest. So what they would do is they would buy things like pearls and diamonds and topaz and jacinth and amethysts and, and stuff like that that were precious stones. And then if they were in trouble or they needed to buy something, they could use those stones as currency. That was very common. It was easy to hide. It was easy to carry around with you and people used them. And, and John is saying the things that are of value, the things that bring security, the things that people work for, they're just common building materials in this kingdom. They're, this kingdom, this city is, is made up of the most valuable, precious material that can be made. And of course, we know that is the souls of human people. That the city, because it's the city that's the wife of the bride, is made up of what is most precious in this world to God. Now, not to man, but to God. And that's the souls of people. And remember I told you to remember about the idea of a square. Where else do we see square? Well, we see that in the, in the uh, tabernacle and the temple and the Holy of Holies. It was a perfect square. And here, this city is a perfect square. And, and just like man went into the tabernacle 
uh, with sacrifice to meet with God. They came one time a year, one person, the high priest could go. We can go anytime into the presence of God. We are in, a t- we are in the holy of holies, the presence of God. And, and we are, <laughs> this is the part that blows me away, we are the holy of holies. We are where God dwells. And that's how much he values us. In fact, he goes on to say, I didn't see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. He, he is the one. We don't have to go to some place to be in the presence of God. God is in us and, and we don't, there's no place to worship God. Wherever we go, he's there and he's everywhere. And God gives his lamp and he gives light. He's the light for this city. It's a very unusual picture. It's a metaphor of complete union with God. Now remember, back in Genesis, that's how God created. That's how God started. He started with Adam and Eve in complete intimacy and relationship. And it was all lost. And now it's being all recovered and restored. And I just want to say to you that this picture of the end times is meant to remind us that where we have failed or where we have made mistakes and where we feel like, oh, God could never want me. I mean, even my family doesn't want me or um, I'm not, I don't feel wanted. I don't feel love. God is saying there's nothing that he cannot restore and make even better than it was before if we're willing to trust in him and his power, willing to surrender him and obey him, just lay it out and walk with him. And that's why we constantly hear in scripture about confession being willing to come to God and say, this is who I am. This is what I've done. This is the reality of who I am. Now, God, I trust you to do something with me and in my life that only you could do. Now, just to clean up or to, to end what we've been talking about uh, from the book of Genesis, we're told that uh, the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit will be there. Remember, we were barred from the tree of life and God said, stop it so that no man can enter, no woman can enter, lest they eat and live forever. And now it's freely open to us. And uh, we are t- it, John says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads, shows the ownership that God has on us and to whom we belong. And there'll be no more night, there'll be no more darkness, there'll be no sin that we ever have to worry about. And God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. So that's the big picture. That's where everything is going to end as God has told us. But we're still in construction right now. Uh, This is what it's going to be like, but it's not there yet. And so when you're living in construction, it gets messy. Things aren't finished. Things are out of place. There's sharp corners that you run into, that kind of thing. In other words, life can get hard. It can get difficult. And it can get painful and we can get discouraged because when we're in a mess, we wonder if it'll ever end. Will we ever get out of it? And that's why uh, I think God gives this picture at the end is to say, hey, I'm going somewhere with this. All the things that happened as a result of the fall, I got it. I'm going to take care of it. Just trust me. And so if you're feeling discouraged right now and you're wondering how long, much longer you're going to be able to keep going on, whether it's in a relationship or whether it's in with a pain that's some sort of pain that's in your life or a circumstance that you're living with or an individual you're dealing with, that God says, hey, I've got it. I'm going to finish this. I'm going to bring into your life a completeness that is so indescribable that when I try to describe it to you, it'll blow your mind, which is exactly what that passage does. I've got a plan and I've got a plan for you. Trust me. Trust me. Don't, don't let discouragement take over. Uh, Trust me and and know my truth. 
know what is really going to happen and what is really happening in life now. Don't let other things and, and don't let the demonic and don't let bad, your emotions that get upset within you tell you things that aren't true. Trust me and trust my word. I haven't. The other thing I would say is that this reminds us that the very simple choice that Adam and Eve had to make is still the choice that you and I have to make. Remember, in this passage, we were told that those who were victorious were those who endured till the end. And so uh, as you're going through life, you have to make choices about God. You have to choose whether or not you're going to follow him or you're going to follow your own way. Now that first comes to bear in the, re in the very simple part of salvation. Uh, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin. And so the question every person has to answer, am I going to believe in Jesus? Am I going to surrender my life to him, put my faith in him? Or am I going to handle my life and my sin and, and whatever I view, however I view life, I'll just deal with it my way. I, I don't need really God. So that's the first decision. If you want to choose to receive Christ, it's very simple because there's nothing we can do to earn the salvation God gives us. He gives us like a father who loves his children. He gives it out of love. And so it just simply means admitting that I'm a sinner before God, that, that Jesus died on the cross to pay for my sin, and I believe it. I surrender my life to him, and now I want to follow and obey you. So that's the first choice we have to make. But then once we make that choice, we have to decide, am I going to continue to follow him? Satan doesn't give up once we receive Christ. He just changes his tactic to now get us discouraged, to lead us down the wrong path, to make us make choices that are disobedient, and destructive to ourselves, our families, or whatever. And so I challenge you that as you're facing the decisions uh, about your screen, or you're facing decisions about work, or, or how, what to do in a relationship, those decisions, seek God and trust Him and obey Him. Because in the end, it's worth it. Jesus, I wanna pray for those today that are struggling, that are discouraged, that feel like they can't go on, that this passage would remind them that you have an end in mind, that you're bringing all things together, you are building something that we can't even understand, but it's going to be glorious and it's going to be worth it. And like Paul said, it won't even be, the pain that we go through won't even be able to be compared with the glory that you're going to reveal in us. Would you breathe that truth fresh in us as a church? in us, those of us that are listening today, in us as your people, and that we would trust you. And then you would help us to make choices to follow you and to obey you. God, for those that are struggling under the weight of guilt and shame, that they would find that Jesus is enough. For those that want to follow you and are trusting you, that they would find joy in your presence and would remember that everything is covered in Jesus and all things come through you. And so now we thank you for this great picture that you have given us, this great plan that you have, and that you've included us in it. We are, we are so thankful for your goodness to us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.